millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Colin Shelton, a language program coordinator for Latin and Greek at the University of Chicago. His scholarly work applies insights from second language acquisition to the teaching and learning of ancient languages. He has also published about ancient Roman etymologizing and the semantics of Latin wordplay. In addition to helping classics graduate students develop their teaching, he has advised teachers in K-12 settings and in ancient language programs outside of classics, like Hebrew, Hittite, and Sanskrit. We spoke about the difference between learning versus acquiring languages, challenges to learning a foreign or ancient language, and making video games a medium to encourage linguistic study. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you very much for joining me. For me, that's in the evening. For you, it's the morning. Time changes, lol. But I want to just jump right in and get us going with how did you get into classics? Like, was it you got into it when you were a little kid and you just love mythology and stories? Or this was something that was a little more slow building? That's a really interesting question, actually, because I kind of feel like you could answer that in different ways, depending on the story you were trying to construct. (laughs) I can remember having a Bullfinch's mythology coloring book (laughs) when I was a child, but I don't think it was necessarily that in itself that made me say, oh, yeah, I absolutely want to study ancient Greek declension tables when I was in university. I think it's probably more the case of like little things one at a time building up. And, and I think like, I didn't, I didn't take any courses that were directly related to Greek or Roman material, or really most ancient world material from anywhere in the world until I was in university. I think that what sort of happened was I had general interests in like language study and in history. I found myself taking a lot of classes at university that kind of 
overlapped with the world of classics, but I'd maybe gotten there from wanting to do linguistics or wanting to take a history course. <laughs> yeah, from talking to people over the years and especially after starting the podcast, it's that there is mm. no one way or no right way to get into yeah. classics. But I mean, okay, so maybe as like an academic study or something that it's definitely not the first thing that young people realize, oh, I can go study this in school. I can like get a job or do this thing. Most people I think just start off with, it's just a side passion or hobby. So growing up, were you into any kind of anime or did you, I don't know, read like mythological, like comic books or any of that stuff? I definitely was a nerdy kid who liked to read mythology. I liked to read fantasy and sci-fi of all sorts. And, and I think kind of related to that, started to read real myth texts or the kind of, or the kind of myth texts that would be collected by anthropologists or that would be compiled by uh, literary scholars. You know, I started to look at things like that. Like I can remember getting uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces as a birthday present when I was an early teenager and feeling like that had the keys to the universe. Uh, suddenly going to read myths very intentionally to find their Jungian archetypes. And, yeah, it was nerdy, not grade nine kind of activity of mine. Campbell, man, I swear, I talked to so many people and they're like, that was the big entry. That was the first time they realized. I mean... Yes, uh, his, I, I remember my good friend handing me his seminal work, Hero of a Thousand mm -hmm. Faces, and being like, read this, I promise you'll like it. And I was like, okay. And then I read it and I was like, oh, actually, you know, what do you know? She's telling the truth. It's very interesting. So how did you then pick sort of your area of specialty? Like, did you always really like the linguistic aspect of it? I mean, was it just like, I mean, I was definitely one of those kids yeah. where I grew up bilingual. So mm. I would notice language things. I mean, yeah. for me, I grew up speaking English and French. Mm. I was fluent by the time I was in first grade because I went to total immersion French school. Mm. And so, yeah, I would just, my brain was, I guess, hardwired to notice language things. But mm. for a lot of my friends who didn't grow up bilingual, some of them got really into language and some just were like, no, that doesn't click with my brain. So I'm always curious how people really come to language as like yeah. something more than just, I speak this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for me, language has always been a really important part of what keeps me in the discipline of classics. And, and more generally, it's what I'm kind of interested in intellectually and have been for a long time. It's interesting you mentioned bilingualism, because that's definitely a part of the story I would tell about myself as well. I grew up bilingual in German and English and, you know, that German was one of our home languages. And I also went to a bilingual school where we had German in the morning and English in the afternoon for half the year and then switched for the other half of the year. So, so yeah, I mean, definitely still can, if I rate myself, I still can definitely make kind of intermediate high or advanced low kinds of pieces of German very put myself up to advanced mid or maybe advanced high if I really work at it. German was always this extra possibility. And that I think just, you can't help but start to get interested in the parallels between languages when you have those two options all the time for looking at the world. 
like even if it seems like it's something relatively insignificant, like noticing that ah, the word for restaurant sounds a lot like the English word for restaurant. Restaurant, it's very similar to restaurant. How did that happen? How do we end up with the same sounds in two different languages? I mean, that's interesting if you have two languages. For sure. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, yeah. I definitely was not going to go into linguistics. Like that was not my jam. Um, yeah. But I have always had this sincere appreciation. And one of the things that I found funny, I didn't grow up with German. I have friends and sort of extended family, I think, who can mm. either speak or read or something German. It was so funny how growing up and speaking French, I was like, yeah, we have a lot of very similar sounding words. We borrow in English words and phrases that are French. And so everyone knows what a rendezvous is, even though that's, you know, there's there's no in making that English. That's just French. But French, kind of like English, I noticed, it's, it's one of those where if you're trying to describe something, we will have a specific word for it. But then you take mm. something like German. And I remember a good friend of mine in college trying to teach me some German and then saying, German is not like French. He's like, basically, when the word we have for something is basically literally trying to describe what the item is. And so mm. he would always say, I don't remember the word off the top of my head, but he was like trying to tell me what refrigerator was or freezer or something. And he was like, mm. it literally translated to like box of ice or ice box or something. And I was like, oh, we don't, I guess I'd never thought about it, but I was like, we don't really do that in French yeah. and English. We just have a word and people know what it means. So yeah, those little like language quirks I find are, are very interesting. But one thing that I guess I, I'll get into since I do have a, mm. a language expert with me here, <laughs> and it's something I don't really get to ask very often, so it's very mm. fun, is I don't think a lot of people are aware of the difference between language acquisition mm. and just like learning a language sort of like in a high school classroom. Mm. And there is like a really big difference from what I understand between actually acquiring it versus learning it. Mm. From your perspective, would you be able to sort of tell us like what is the actual difference? And like, should everyone who just takes like a high school Spanish class be like, oh yes, I'm learning Spanish versus I'm acquiring my Spanish? Hmm. Well, I can't speak for everybody who takes high school Spanish. <laughs> and I think if I could give you the definitive answer on this question, I'd be a celebrity in sort of uh, second language acquisition theory. But it's an interesting question. And some theories make a big deal about this distinction. In particular, in the world of classics, in the last few years, there's been a growing interest in the theories of Stephen Krashen, who is a researcher mostly based at the University of Southern California. And his sort of seminal works came out in the 80s. And Krashen proposed this theory that said that the way that one gets a first language is totally distinct from the way one might learn a language in high school. That when you're exposed to language, you have sort of innate mechanism that takes in that data from the language and works out a new system. And Krashen would call that acquisition. And he would distinguish it from learning, which would be like a formal lesson in how the language works. Krashen's big distinction, like he wasn't the only one to sort of draw these distinctions between, say, first language 
acquisition and second language acquisition, my um, babies pick up language really easily, it would seem, <laughs> compared to the effort that adults seem to have to go to, through to have language abilities that are similar to native speaking children. So Krashen isn't the only one who's interested in it, but I think for this distinction between acquisition and learning, Krashen is an important person to focus on because he really emphasizes that if you're learning formally about the language, you would say that's not actually even helping you acquire the language. That if you're learning your charts of conjugated verbs, that's not going to help you. The only thing that will help you is exposure to the language in use. So he calls learning charts and so on, learning a language and picking it up by exposure acquisition. Okay. All right. Yeah, that is, I think from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really yeah. helpful distinction. So I can understand that for most modern languages, but it's like, is there any way to acquire like old dead languages like Latin or ancient Greek? I mean, there's, there's no like true native speakers of this. Like we all have to pick up a textbook and learn the the stuff can we yeah. look at closer modern related languages but i mean even then it's like the differences between modern and ancient greek are very different i think there are a few different models we can look at for trying to sort this out and for one thing there's a paper published in volume in 2020 or 2021 i can't remember what it was called or when exactly it came out but it's in a book called communicative approaches to ancient language teaching and it documents two children who have been raised as bilingual Latin speakers and their journey towards Latin acquisition. So somebody's doing this and somebody has written research based on this. So apparently it's possible to do it in just the way that you or I picked up French or German. I think it that... takes a lot of dedication on the part of parents. Yeah, I mean, especially since, okay, with a Latin, I feel like it's a little easier because technically religions, like churches, mm. they'll still use Latin and like the Pope can speak Latin. So there are like people who can speak Latin. So I suppose if you wanted to get like books and try to raise people to speak, you could. I don't know if it would be harder with like a language that wasn't really sort of readily used like Latin though. Mm. I mean, ancient Greek is less used. Greek is still, I guess, the language of religion for like Eastern Orthodox churches and stuff. So mm. to an extent, I suppose you could raise someone speaking at least medieval Greek, if not straight up ancient. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like like you say, ancient Greek texts are the liturgical texts in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So there are real world uses of Greek. But I think like it's funny how when we talk about these issues of like, how could you learn Latin? How could you learn ancient Greek? What would be the best way to do that? We actually very quickly start to slide into these issues of, well, what is a language anyways? What is Latin for? What is Greek for? For that matter, what is French for or German for? And there's a way when you're looking at a, a modern language that you can see like this complete package where it seems like every possible use of language is available in that language. <laughs> and when we look at an ancient language, it seems to be all fragmented. And therefore, it seems like the task must be different in itself. <laughs> but one thing that I think is useful for thinking about ancient languages and also applies to modern languages is that not every language learner needs the language for the same purposes. And you're going to need different amounts and types and qualities of language, depending on the task you're trying to perform. If you need to be able to 
hold a rapid fire conversation where you're exchanging views about broadly shifting set of topics that range from the everyday conversation to deepest philosophy, then you're probably going to need to have a community that can give you those kinds of conversations as part of how you learn. And you're also going to need to read those philosophical texts and probably have a phrase book that gives you conversational language at some point so that you can enhance your conversations with more than just you know, what you pick up from listening to other people. You could imagine doing that with any modern language, but that may not be what you, the only reason you learn a modern language. It may be that you need a modern language specifically in order to read particular policy documents in that language. Say you're like interested in comparative politics, you're not really planning to do an in-depth study of something, but you've heard bilingualism and is really interesting for thinking about language rights. So you might want to read how it's written in Flemish. And then you would maybe need to just focus on reading skills and you might take a very much more text-based approach and one that would allow you to be very slow and deliberate in how you read because you're interested in these details of a very complicated document. You're not necessarily needing the skills that would allow you to have conversation that also lets you tell jokes in Flemish. <laughs> True. So now this begs the question mm. of, in, in terms of use and, and this may just be very subjective again just by person yeah. but if you were going to learn to communicate if you wanted to learn to communicate with a lot of people and it's not mm. like you have to become a polyglot who's fluent in 10 languages is it almost more helpful to be fluent in two or three so you could have like meaningful conversations or do the like sort of polyglot light thing where you might be able to have a much more rudimentary vocabulary, but mm. in like six or seven. So while you could have, you couldn't have deep conversations, you could talk to like seven different people who spoke seven different languages and you could have very mm. basic conversations. Like, is there advantages to one over the other or is think, it really yeah. just all subjective? I, I don't know if it's subjective, but I think it varies. <laughs> That lot depends on like, what are you, what is going to make you feel good as a person? Uh, what is going to help you achieve your goals in life? What kinds of cir circumstances will you actually encounter that make you or allow you to use the languages you've gained? I think from the point of view of just intellectual pleasure, you could get a lot out of dabbling in languages, maybe even especially with without like devoting the long hours to learning lots of vocabulary and practicing over and over again if you just want to have your imagination fired by isn't it amazing that verbs in arabic are inflected for gender isn't it amazing that in hawaiian there are two different words for we depending on who's included if you're just interested in that that kind of beautiful diversity of human languages. You don't necessarily have to be fluent in Arabic and Hawaiian to appreciate that, though you will probably appreciate more and more the more you learn about any of those languages. So I don't know, I feel like to if you're thinking in terms of Latin and ancient Greek, I think it's really worth thinking about what do you want from the experience right now? It's gonna change as you spend more time learning a language, 
But when you begin, it might just be interesting to learn the details of the language without grinding the vocabulary. But maybe the reason you want to learn Latin in the first place is that you really just love this Catullus poem that you encountered in translation, and you want to be able to understand the depths of it. <laughs> and to be able to recite it beautifully in Latin and to be able to explain it to other people. And that might lead you to spend more time and actually grind that vocabulary and spend long hours reading dictionary entries to get the nuances of each word in that poem. Those are both legitimate ways to look at learning a language. And I think that neither of those adds up to a kind of generalized fluency, right? There's no, fluency is not a thing in a way. It's, there's no like single switch that you flip where suddenly, oh, now you're a fluent Latin speaker or Latin user. It's a gradually acquired thing. In a lot of the research, actually, fluency is, is a thing. I overstated when I said it's not a thing at all. But the way people use fluency often in talking about language when they're doing research into language learning is fluency is just specifically the, can you perform tasks with the language at speed or is it very effortful? Ah, okay. That's helpful. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up thinking, yeah, I was fluent in French, but I suppose it, it never really stopped. You don't stop learning. Mm -hmm. And, and if you stop practicing, it does actually go away, which is very scary. I mean, you know, if right. I went, I always wonder, you know, well, if I ever went to a place where they just don't speak English and then I, you know, maybe did acquire a different language and then I just stopped speaking English, would I ever yeah. forget it? Probably not. Cause that's what I grew up with, but I'm just like, right. I don't know, maybe I'd get rusty. Maybe I'd start using the wrong words. Maybe I'd just sound very international. Cause I'd use like a very clunky way to say something in English where people would be yeah, like, what? That could, yeah, that could well happen. I, I always think of sort of, I think of it kind of this way on the fluency question, actually, that I'm like, I'm fluent in German, but I still speak like I'm in grade six. <laughs> so <laughs> I could like, I could totally talk to you like a precocious child at, at a fast speed with a child's vocabulary. <laughs> okay. Is that like a confidence thing? Cause like, I know confidence plays a big part in people either feeling successful in using the language, even if they're not like quote unquote yeah. fluent in it versus yeah. like timidly sort of Oh, wait, 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 like concentrating on every single word. Wait, does it sound right? Am I conjugating this correctly? I forgot who it was, but I think it was some someone I was speaking to said the best way was honestly just like, let someone just speak and let them make all the grammar errors and you can go back and tell them why it's wrong later. The biggest thing is mm -hmm. getting that confidence up where it's like, don't just stop someone as they're trying to say a sentence, be like, that's wrong. Yeah, confidence is really important. I think that feeling like, you actually belong in whatever language community you're trying to enter makes a huge difference to your ability to interact. So I think that as language teachers, we probably have, we should be really conscious of how we build confidence. And as what I take away from the anecdote you just told is you know, some really good advice, I think, actually, for how to work with people who are learning for the first time. And that's to welcome them in rather than to remind them that they're outside. <laughs> Even just that realization, though, it took me a really long time because mm. I remember when I was in school and I was in my first semester of ancient Greek, 
Mm. Part of the reason that, I mean, I didn't end up taking a, a second semester, so thus a mm-hmm. full year of, of Greek because of health reasons and other things, and mm-hmm. then I just didn't have time in my schedule to ever resume them. But mm-hmm. I just remember thinking in that first semester, like, my teacher was really nice, and he was really good at teaching us the rules and all the stuff. But when it came mm-hmm. to sort of reading out loud, I remember he would, we would be reading a sentence. And then every time you like stumbled, cause you saw a word you didn't know, a lot of people would just sort of stop and sort of, you could see their eyes would look up to the professor and be uh, like, can you help me? Can you help me? And he yeah. would just tell you what it was and then and and then proceed to the like every single time you needed help he would you would wait for him to like give you the correction Mm -hmm. and so i i noticed that ended up slowing me up and everyone Mm -hmm. else up and at that point i I was like just you know what just read the sentence he'll tell you what it is after but like if you Mm -hmm. keep waiting you're never going to feel confident to say this word or read the sentence unless you have Mm -hmm. him there to like look at and be like wait just just fill in this one word and so just like my own frustrations, I think, of the method in which it was being taught and presented. I was like, this is just like really bad for everyone's confidence, for my confidence, because I did it too. Like I I just, mm-hmm. if everyone else was doing it, you know, I didn't want to be that yeah. one person who would just confidently as possible say it wrong. So right. then I noticed like, it's that collective, you don't want to be the one to stand out because it's embarrassing or it's weird. And then everyone is trying to, you know, pretend they know what they're doing. And so I was definitely like, okay, after this, if I pick up another language, that's really hard. I want to be in a very friendly environment where Mm. everyone can like confidently be wrong, but also have someone very politely and nicely be like, that was so good. The only thing Mm. I would correct you on is this. And you'd be like, okay. So I don't know, years later, when I tried to two years ago, start modern Greek, I found more of an environment of they'll let you just be blatantly wrong and then Uh, go back. And then I learned, oh, so that's why this feels a little more comfortable than that first experience. Cause this one, they're just going to let me say it. Um, And even if I paused, they'd be like, no, no, no come on, like, like finish the sentence. (laughs) Like they wouldn't Uh give you the answer until they were like, no, I want you to say it or read it first. And you're like, uh, but you know, everyone's together in their embarrassment, I suppose. I suppose so. Well, I think there's two, I hear two really interesting things in that, that experience you shared. And to me, one of the things that I think this points out is the way that like a classroom is a community that's being formed, you know, by the act of being in class together, even without anything explicitly being said, of course, we're like looking at our peers and trying to figure out like, what are the rules that we have somehow formed in this space? And that those classroom dynamics have can take a life of their own quite apart from whatever subject is being studied. So maybe that that leads to the other thing that I observe is that, you know, it's interesting that it, your experience is so different in the modern Greek classroom versus the ancient Greek classroom. And I wonder if that has something to do with the way that for a lot of modern language, some of these issues of teaching technique and confidence building have really been absorbed into the discipline much more where they're kind of the default setting for how a teacher is going to approach the classroom. Whereas, uh, especially if you're taking Latin or ancient Greek at university, you're probably being taught by people who know a huge amount about ancient Greek and Roman culture, but have never taken an education course. (laughs) And so the discipline of classics as a whole, it's starting to change a little bit, but tends not to have absorbed some of these things that are 
taken as default good practice in modern language setting. They tend to be a little bit more like our colleagues in non-language disciplines, like in the sciences or in other like non-language human programs that are just kind of like picking up things about teaching along the way, rather than having dedicated programs designed to train us. Do you think that would be useful for linguists and regular classicists who, I mean, if it's required to take the languages as part of the major, but Mm. since most of the time the linguists and the classicists themselves really learned it in sort of the, the way of just you have to, you know, pound the books and then you're taught by this person who's not specifically trained to like teach adults They teach Mm -hmm. the grammar, you know, so they might be Mm -hmm. really good with teaching people grammar, but then that's not, I've, I've tended to notice that the people who are great with grammar though, have like Mm. the worst self-confidence in terms of just speaking. And Mm -hmm. I know this from personal experience, because actually when I did take ancient Greek for the semester, I took it, Mm -hmm. the grammar came really easy to me because my brain just Mm -hmm. choose grammar. And I'm like, ah, I understand it. But yeah. then I noticed that the habits then for like reading aloud and speaking, my confidence mm-hmm. was like way down. Like I'd never wanted to yeah. be heard because I was like, oh no, because I'm trying to like conjugate everything in my head beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that's totally not how you want it to flow. So I'm just kind of thinking like maybe sort of to avoid the same kind of confidence issue. But I mean, I suppose you could have confidence issues no matter what you do. My wonderful wonderful father has been trying to learn french for the past like 20 years and Mm. bought himself all the rosettas and the the helper things and just to this day insists that he cannot speak a word of french no matter how hard he tries and i Mm. can't figure out whether it's a confidence thing i'm like is it the self-motivation that you let like Mm. language itself in trying to learn it i've noticed is just like so weird because everyone has to have such a different process Mm-hmm. And it it kind of, I'm just like, but but why? Like, it, mm-hmm. I feel like there should be a good, better way of coming into a language or teaching it or something, as mm-hmm. long as, you know, one is motivated to learn it. Mm-hmm. But like, I've just seen so many people like go in and try various methods and programs. Mm-hmm. And most of them have either dropped after a year or been like, no, 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 mm-hmm. it's, it's too hard. I wasn't confident. I didn't like this. Right. And I'm like, right. how do we make that better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I think the the history of language teaching, at least since the 18th century, is the history of people looking for one magic solution to language learning after another. Especially if you look at the 20th century, it's like every five years, there's supposed to be some new technique that is going to be the magic technique. And it's usually presented as that's the best technique for everybody in all circumstances. I think what I would take away from looking at that history is that there's a lot of things that work for a lot of people (laughs) because you wouldn't say this is the best thing in all circumstances if it didn't work some of the time. And yet everybody knows anecdotally about uh, the difficulties of language learning, which also means that none of these things works for everybody all of the time. (laughs) As people, we're different and that impacts our learning. I think there's really robust research on the differences in learning that happen based on a huge range of factors. Some of them may have to do with you know, so-called learning styles. Some of them may have to do with 
you know, more broad personality traits. Uh, there was one study I saw that tracked people who performed really well on foreign service interview tests to like establish what you know, branch of the U.S. government you might work in overseas, what kinds of roles you'd be qualified for, and found that like broad personality traits were better predictors of who did well than specific like learning related traits. <laughs> So there's all kinds of things that are varied from person to person. And I think if we want to make learning better, we have to think about who we're actually trying to make it better for and try to meet that particular person or the, that group of people who's here today, rather than assuming there's one thing that's going to work for everybody. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, definitely for independent language learning schools and programs, I know that they're all different. But I feel like for universities, at least, and high schools, mm -hmm. we've definitely tried to sort of paint with a very broad brushstroke and sort mm -hmm. of standardize how you teach language at the collegiate and high school level. Mm -hmm. And I would really, really love to see a deviation from, we're going to just put you in this class and this is how it goes. I mean, mm -hmm. th there just really isn't accommodation for the different learning speeds and learning styles. I mean, mm -hmm. I was placed with, I mean, my brain is good at grammar, but I was placed with someone who was not at all good with grammar. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. they just could not grasp. It took forever. And so I just thought to myself, well, I, I wish there were something where I could be with other grammar people. So then maybe we could work exclusively on like we could speed through the grammar because we got that and, and mm -hmm. instead of spending 45 minutes on the grammar because the person next to me just can't do it mm -hmm. I'd like to maybe then take that 45 minutes and do speaking for those of mm -hmm. us who are not confident with speaking mm -hmm. vice versa because the person who couldn't do right. grammar though was great with speaking I mean she would just mm -hmm. leave the chatterbox and I was like mm -hmm. I think this is awesome but then she makes me feel really inadequate because she's here speaking and I'm here like yeah. well I can conjugate that for you but I couldn't go order a sandwich right. so you know I think it but then again I don't know the challenges and the logistics of trying to accommodate for different like individuals so you know if you were if we were to be able to change how it's taught especially at the like collegiate level mm -hmm. maybe university of chicago is different because i went to a big state school and definitely mm -hmm. we did not have the resources and, and faculty mm -hmm. and whatever but is there a scenario in which it's possible that we could have more individualized language learning yeah to, i to think help it, people? i think it it can be done. And there are several different ways to, that it could be done. One model might be to have really differentiated instruction in every class, you know, sort of assuming that every learner is going to be distinct and I'm going to set up stations in my classroom so that there's not just one thing to do today that everybody's going to do, but instead there's going to be five different things that people could work on depending on where they're at. I've seen actually descriptions of Latin classes that have been run that way. And it's a really interesting. Kristen Meinking at Elon University wrote a paper a few years ago describing a Latin class where everybody worked at their own pace. And when they came to class, they were put in groups depending on what particular assignment they had gotten to in the homework. So that's one model that you know can work in that direction towards 
you know, really saying grammar people, you've maybe finished the grammar thing. You've still got this other thing to do. So you're going to work together. <laughs> Another model might be to think with a kind of universal design for learning kind of perspective to say, there's going to be multiple needs in this classroom. So we just need to make sure that there's a variety of things happening all the time. And there's even some scholarship that suggests that it's good to push people to do the things they're not good at, as well as to push them to do the things they're good at. So if that's true, then it maybe makes sense to say, we're going to have a grammar drill section of the class, and that'll be good for the person who's bad at grammar drill. And we're going to have a conversation exercise where we've got to pair up and talk about uh, ordering a sandwich in ancient Greek. <laughs> because that'll be good for the people who, uh, who can't do that yet. <laughs> um, I think the, those would be two different ways that this could happen. Practically, it takes some investment on the part of the teacher. Like there's no way you can do either of those things, just opening the textbook and saying, we're gonna go through the textbook in the order that things appear. Yep will take some more deliberate planning. What about making all language classes taught with two professors, two like a, mm. like co-teachers? And and they don't even need to be both from classics or linguistics. So what what mm. if to get sort of this more holistic idea of how to teach adults, how to work with folks, you know, you have like one main professor who could be from classics or linguistics. Mm -hmm. But then what if you invite someone who's from the language department or the education mm -hmm. department or somebody mm -hmm. who knows that language and then could co-teaching it work so that like, yeah, if your professor is like a linguist who's really good at grammar, you can be mm -hmm. like, great, this, this person is great for the grammar folks. Mm -hmm. You can work with the grammar people and then you switch to get mm -hmm. different experiences per class time. But then again, you know, I don't know the logistics of, is it would it be harder than than I think it would be to then sort of have to plan and share a whole semester's worth of like intensive Latin with mm. another person who may or may not be from your department? No, I think like if we're thinking about, if we're really trying to think outside the box, that's a solution that could be really exciting. I mean, I worked with a number of colleagues a few years ago on kind of making some proposals to innovate some of the language programs on our campus. And one of the things that we kept coming back to was the that we could have these, we could have all kinds of possibilities through co-teaching. You could create courses that potentially even used more than one language if that helped you study a topic in more detail. And thinking about, say, just in the world of classics, without leaving the classics department, all kinds of topics would be interesting to look at with both Latin and ancient Greek. And I've even seen that done like at the place where I did my PhD at the University of Washington they've offered undergraduate seminars that are cross-listed as Greek Latin and classical civilization courses and you can read as much in Latin or Greek or English translation as is appropriate for your skill level those sorts of things can work logistically you know, putting my administrator's hat on. Universities tend not to like sharing uh, faculty across departments. Uh, there's, all, there's all kinds of ways that universities would have trouble accommodating that right now, but that's not to say that it can't happen. It's not a bad idea. It's just that it's an idea that would take some of the hard work of politics to uh, make work. <laughs> uh, well, everything, I suppose, with 
everything in life, but especially with, with academia is sort of politic. I mean, everyone's mm-hmm. fighting for funding and everyone yep. doesn't like to share resources because whatever precious resources you do get, you don't want to let it go to mm-hmm. somebody else. Is this something that maybe professors would feel comfortable sort of outsourcing the co-teaching part to like grad students or is yeah, that I like mean, administratively at the universities I've worked at and where I've had a hand in like managing grad student resources it's easier to share grad students than to share faculty <laughs> um, whether that means that's the best way to do it I think that's a it, it's neither here nor there but it is often easier to administrate that way <laughs> okay. Um, okay I don't know I think that There's also ways that we can do collaboration without co-teaching that can be really productive. So I am involved on my campus with the the language center, which is a sort of staff unit that, you know, mostly it's not faculty who work in the language center. It's dedicated full-time staff who are there to support language teaching. And they run all kinds of programming that will help people build better language courses, improve day-to-day language instruction. And they're well positioned to sort of work behind the scenes to maybe share some of that expertise without having to, you know, go to the co-teaching model. And uh, so that's a model that, you know, is maybe, maybe would work a little more easily behind the scenes. And we're starting to do more stuff that appeals specifically to ancient language teachers uh, within those kinds of models as well. And sort of working with a few colleagues like um, in East Asian languages and Near Eastern languages to try and see like, what can we do to share with each other about techniques and so on, so that we have a kind of united language for talking about what the best practice is. Yeah, I think that could definitely be something we look at in the future, obviously. Mm there are a lot of universities who just like don't have the resources for separate language centers, which is so regrettable. And I mean, if my alma mater had the money for that, I Mm. would have totally been in there all the time, but Mizzou is money is money is a huge issue. Yeah. And even at a rich school, it's funny how few resources end up in some areas. (laughs) Well, that's one thing I think that that's like a myth, right? That a lot of people spend so much time trying to dispel, which is you kind of assume that with a rich university, all the money is going into the pockets of all these tenured professors and they're just sitting there becoming rich. And um, Mm -hmm. my experience with my friends who are teaching in academia are like, "Um, that's not where the money's going. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. not coming to us. So I don't know where that came from. Yeah, yeah, it's... Well, I, that, that is probably a question to ask a like media studies expert. Like, I know. Out, like, I, I, how I, the <laughs> modern university is portrayed and understood. Oh, I know. I, you know, if you think about it long enough, then you, you get more and more angry with, well, why does this have to go this way? And I need someone who can explain to me. And I don't think there's going to be an adequate answer for that from anyone other than just short of, I don't know, like a university president or dean or something who controls all the the purse strings or knows all the connections but yeah well you know sitting on the outside looking in is just um everything looks dire and it's depressing Uh (laughs) (laughs) oh no it's not here too (laughs) right and then you're like no but it's it's not gonna come it's not gonna 
it came they're coming for us but so to to wrap up this this wonderful discussion on language that i've really enjoyed enjoyed because i love language as someone who's big into linguistics and language and language acquisition especially if you have and if you had any advice for someone who really was like you know i'd like to pick up a second language but you know Mm. oh i don't know if i have the time or the motivation or Mm. why should i is it really worth it you know what would you say to someone who's just kind of on the edge for like why it's a good thing like dabble pick up something like yes it's it's Mm. hard work that a lot of people they'll look at on the surface and just be like, I don't have time for that. We don't talk about like actually why it's good. I mean, I think we get a lot of surface level. Oh, well, if you traveled to Paris, you could just like speak French. And I think, you know, there's this romanticized thing about, oh, well, if, Mm. if you learned this, you can do this specific thing, but Mm. it goes so much more beyond. I'm going to sit here and be convinced to learn this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just like learn something to do the one task. Cause I feel like once the one task is over, if you achieve it, mm. then you're like, okay, whatever. So like why actually spend the time acquiring another language? I would say that languages force you to say certain things about the world. And that means that they give you an opportunity to see the world in different ways. So, for example, English forces you to specify whether or not you're talking about some specific thing that we put the word the in front of, or whether it's things in general or a not specific thing, we put a in front of that word. This is a really abstract idea, but it's something English forces you to do in every single sentence that you speak. Latin doesn't force you to do that, but it does force you to specify every time you use an adjective, whether or not the thing you're talking about is masculine, feminine, or neuter. That makes you think about masculine, feminine, and neuter all the time when you're learning Latin. It makes you really think about, well, why, what makes something masculine or feminine or neuter? What do these categories even mean? And this isn't; these aren't just arbitrary categories either. These are things that Romans themselves were interested in. They wrote books that discussed why do we call something masculine? Why do we think of it in that way? The language encodes a kind of vision of how the world is put together. And even just starting to study a language, you start to encounter this other way of seeing the way the world is put together. And to me, that's one of the fascinating things that we can do as people when we want to expand our imaginations. I agree. And also that you just gave me the opening that I just like, it couldn't have come up better to sort of segue us to, to sort of get us from here into the next part, which is I have definitely heard that in addition to getting us to think differently about the world. I've heard it's very common that if you speak a different language, whatever language you speak, it alters how you perceive not only like things, Mm -hmm. but really big concepts and just like the world around you. So like if Mm -hmm. I speak 
oh gosh, I don't remember what the language was in question, but um, there's like a certain language where the way that they talk about time is so mm. very different from how Americans think about time, which mm. would lead one to then, if you speak this language, you perceive time completely differently. So, you know, when we talk about, oh, well, what is standardizing how we think about time? What, what is time? And then it's like, mm. well, to us, it's this thing. And then to this other, you know, group of people who speak this other language, it's like wildly different, wildly different, which I think is really cool. I mean, every time someone was like, yeah, the language you speak like alters how you perceive the world. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So when I dream in French, am I perceiving the world differently than English brain? I guess so. But like so this concept, I think, is just like super cool Mm. and Unless like people have been told about it, I I don't really know anyone who is aware of like that as a concept and as a thing. And so I would like to see this really well done and portrayed in like film or TV or something that could really help make linguistics and languages and learning them seem amazingly awesome. But I am not like super looking for things like this when I, you know, take in my media, but Uh you, on the other hand, as (laughs) someone who really is into languages, have you noticed any kind of like film or TV or even play that has done really well in characterizing like either a linguistic expert or just treated Mm. learning languages with any degree of like reality and the respect it deserves? That's interesting. You know, I think there's I'm not sure if any movie I've seen does a really good job of showing language learning or language experts yeah, as they work realistic context. But thinking as you were saying, asking the question about the arrival, that movie is amazing for getting at some of these ideas of what would it be like to really learn a, a language that is very different from the one you already know or the ones you already know. And what would it really mean to have your perception changed by learning that language? I think, you know, for getting, for using the sort of medium of film and the techniques of movie storytelling to try and poke at that big question, I think that movie actually worked really well. I had a feeling you were going to say Arrival just because Mm. most of the linguist friends that I know or have or spoken to, they all point to, oh, Arrival did such a good job because never ever is, you know, the protagonist of like a major box office hit, an academic. It's interesting because if I'm thinking about like spacey movies, Mm. yes, I will think of Arrival, but also, and it, it, it was just like very recently it had occurred to me have you seen interstellar no i haven't <laughs> okay okay well do you do you mind a little spoily thing please or... please go okay. ahead i feel like the the discourse of movies is part of their pleasure <laughs> okay just just but... because i'm not gonna spoil it too much for anyone who hasn't seen it although i really mm. recommend watching it okay but a, a major premise of the movie is that when Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway kind of fly off into space ostensibly to save the world. A major theme that's recurring is what connects people from our galaxy to the made up one that they're going to. And Mm. like, how do you communicate? And they play around with this idea of there are more than five dimensions. They were like, there's more Mm. than five physical dimensions. We just, Mm. 
we haven't learned them, we haven't seen them. Hmm. And it's really interesting that what they did is because this was so advanced, there's no language or no real way to communicate with the quote unquote beings that are just kind hmm. of like these godly things. And hmm. so the movie did something really interesting. And they had the main characters communicating using Morse and binary. Now mm. it's a very sciencey movie. And so like mm -hmm. it would stand to reason that you just throw astrophysics and, and all right. that stuff in there. Right. But on some level, it was linguistic where the way that he communicates with certain people aspects mm -hmm. is that he has to like type out messages using Morrison binary. And mm. so that's not something I would traditionally consider a language, but mm. is it? possible like i don't think i would acquire morse or binary the way i would acquire spanish but like yeah. as someone who knows languages i mean would that even be within the realm of possibility to consider being able to like code back and forth through well morse i think yeah i mean i guess what we're sort of getting at with this with that thought experiment that the movie portrays right is like the difference between language and communication <laughs> that maybe we can't use language to communicate with non-humans, but there are other kinds of communication that might work. And mathematicians tend to like to think that math is going to be the universal thing that goes beyond the human. And maybe, maybe that is how you would end up doing it. I don't know. I've never been that good at math, but so I'll take, take their word for it. <laughs> Me neither. So, you know, they could say anything and it would sound good to me. So I've had to rely on friends who are like actually engineers and stuff to be like, okay, yeah. is this just yeah. crap? Or like, are they on to mm. something? Because I mean, you know, some of it was like, okay, if you're trying to relay coordinates in the universe, you can mm. tap them out using binary and, mm. and Morse and, and whatever. Yeah. But I believe that the SETI project has actually done that when they've done radio transmissions for aliens to receive, they've sent binary code. So. See, so like I could understand the premise of like using that if you want to communicate like location, mm. but I just found it strange that like they were taking it away from, I am here, you are there, find me here. Like other than that kind of basic mm. thing to how do you find some, because I mean, a big theme of that movie was like finding, you're, you're constantly trying to find mm. the thing, the savior, the person, like you're trying to mm. find something. So I understand why you would use the code to imply this is how you find me but mm -hmm. like strung in with all the finding of people and places and things they were also trying to communicate that like you could transmit the theme of love mm -hmm. like through binary and i was like well love is an emotion and i suppose you can communicate an emotion but like as humans i feel like humans mostly interact with that emotion through like you, you have to like come like say it mm. you, you have to speak it verbalize mm. it more than mm. just writing it down on a piece of paper doesn't do as as well as telling someone you you love them or appreciate them so i found it really interesting mm. that they didn't want to see yeah. just to location right and that's maybe the, the moment at which the the linguist in me will will kick off and be like well it's really hard to convey that kind of concept from one language to another among humans. How, 
like how big would the decision tree have to be to try and explain um, a concept like love in just yes or no kinds of answers. But so, I suppose like in the abstract, sure, but you probably need a supercomputer to try and right. write that uh, string of zeros and ones. Exactly. So I'm just like, okay, well, you know, that's where it definitely became more science fiction-y, just mm -hmm. pure fantastical. But I, I will say, I don't want to like spoil the, the fun. It is a really fun movie to watch. So right. if you get a chance, I highly recommend it. And then you can amend your opinion based on, you know, what you, what you've seen. I yeah, think that'd be really fun. I think that'd be really fun to reconvene and just see, okay, so you saw it, like, what do you think? Yeah. But in your perfect world, if you could create your own movie or TV show and have it portray language learning, how would you do it? Oh, man. <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to kind of cop out of the perfect world answer and say, like, there's one other model that I think is pretty good. It's sort of a that, and I think it would be like a tweak on this model that would get closer. And there's a game called Heaven's Vault, where the basic premise is that you are an alien archaeologist. <laughs> And a major part of the game mechanics, classic point and click adventure game, which is totally what I was doing in the 90s. This is a more recent thing, updated graphics, updated sound design. But a major part of the game is you go around and you find inscriptions and you try to decipher the inscriptions. And so if you're, um, you have to do the old fashioned point and click adventure game kind of stuff, getting out a notebook and writing down these symbols and trying to figure out how they relate to one another across different inscriptions. And to me, that is, that's pretty good at giving you a sense of like what language learning is like. <laughs> I think the, the thing that makes it maybe not quite totally there yet is that the inscriptions are relatively easy to solve compared to what it would be if you were really working on an undeciphered language. <laughs> I think that we should have more, we should do archaeo gaming, but for linguistics where yes, we have video games set up where you can have like digital version of the escape room idea, but your character has to decode and okay, well, if you have historians and linguists work on the video games, they can find some mechanism for making characters deciphered. You can, you, you can find a way, yeah. but I think that would be really fun have some yeah. kind of interactive archaeogamy thing since archaeogaming at least is a thing yes but yeah i think i think you're right that given that well i've learned about so many of the games from listening to your podcast actually that incorporate archaeological elements in translation at least or as flavor text you know the mech it wouldn't be that far from making flavor text to um, actually making text part of the mechanism <laughs> I just, I'm like, I'm seeing endless possibilities. Obviously you have to like sell the game studios on this because obviously yeah. they are under time constraints. So I don't know how yeah. much time it takes to like digitize all these texts and then put yeah. them in games and then figure out mechanisms for that will allow everyone who wants to play the video game to do it, even if they right. don't really care about linguistics. Yeah. So that might be a, a harder lift, but I don't think it's impossible. And I think that could be something fun that I'm looking at you, Ubisoft, like you're spending so much money on digitizing ancient texts anyway. I'm like, mm -hmm. you're a multi-billion dollar company. 
you could definitely do like a little pilot project. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep yeah. staring at Ubisoft <laughs> until they, they blink and, and, and do it first. But yeah, I think, I think it would just be a really fun idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. At the end of every podcast, I do ask each guest if they will read the Shelley version of the poem Ozymandias. And then right. it doesn't need to be the longest, most erudite thing you've ever said about it. But if you could just give us your quick thoughts on kind of the meaning and, and messages of, of this poem and, and also, you know, why is it special? Oh, all right. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'll start by reading it. I've got it up here. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a great poem. (laughs) I've loved that poem since I first read it as a teenager. And I guess I thought about it at different junctures because I've read it again and again. And I think the thing that's really striking me as I read it right now, actually is the way the desert plays out in here. I've spent a lot of time in Arizona over the last few years and been thinking a lot about desert spaces and the way they're kind of unappreciated. And this poem is definitely part of the anti-desert kind of tradition. The desert here is the thing that wrecks human ambition. So that's one thing that comes across to me uh, reading it today. And I also, I guess the other thing that strikes me is, I think the last time I read this poem, I had not yet read Amitav Ghosh's book called In an Anti-Plan, <laughs> uh, which is obviously alluding to the, the opening line. And it's sort of his memoirs of working in a small Egyptian village in like late 80s, early 90s, as a researcher coming from India via Britain. And the conversations that happen 
in Egypt, when you look at Egypt as a living place, rather than just as this place where there's interesting old wrecks. <laughs> so those two things are, those are the loose associations that are coming to me looking at it this morning. But I also know that when I first read this, and the reason I've read it for many years is still there's something very compelling about the image of the wreck in the desert. And that fired my imagination, even if that's a partial view of Egypt or a partial view of the desert. Well, ru ruins are romantic. So there's that association in here as well. <laughs> Yeah, I say this a lot, but I don't remember exactly when I first read it. I don't know if it was high school or college. I feel like it was high school, though, but I don't remember. Ever since I first read it, yes, it is also, it, it became my favorite poem instantly. And I reread it several times throughout the years. And I just, I think if it's possible, I love it every single time I hear it even more. And I don't mm. really know how that keeps happening because by now mm. I've heard it or read it or interacted with it hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times. So mm. I don't know how it's possible, but yeah, it's one that just keeps continually growing because you, you find something new to, to take out of it. I'm, I'm doing this, this new sort of thing at the end of the podcast. I'm Sure. This last part is what I'm calling Odyssey's End. Okay. And these are three final questions to end the episode. And the first one kind of ties into ancient office hours. Okay. And so the first question I have is, when you were a student, did you attend office hours? Why or why? I did attend office hours. Where in the starting in my last year of university. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at that point, it was amazing. I learned so much from going to office hours. Big shout out to professors I had at that time, Mark Golden in classics and Albert Welter in religious studies. Spending time in their offices, I learned an awful lot that was never part of class. And about like life in general, well beyond like academic topics. And though going to those office hours, those conversations probably, you know, for one thing, convinced me to go to grad school where I did and so on. So that was, so they changed my life in that way. Well, I didn't go to them until I was almost done university because I was just scared. I assumed that professors had better things to do than talk with me and would not uh, put myself through the humiliation of wasting their time. That's how I felt as in college. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, yeah. I'm glad that you did end up going better late than never. Honestly, yeah. honestly, better late than never. So that leads perfectly into now as an educator yourself teaching mm -hmm. students the second question is if you were to make elevator pitch or just why should students go to office hours why should they come talk to you if if we're assuming that you may have some students who kind of felt the same way you did mm -hmm. and let's let us dispel them of that notion but yeah make, make if you if i'm asking you to build a case for yourself yeah why why go to office hours i'd say the reason to go to office hours is that learning is individualized and you have a chance to have one-on-one -on -one conversations and they may not be strictly about the class you're taking. They may well wander away from that, but if it's new to you and helpful to you, that's learning. And you're only going to get that kind of one-on-one -on -one tailored experience in an office hours setting. I couldn't agree more. I definitely, yeah. definitely most of my time in office hours 
was not even about school or the class. It was yeah. my very shambly, just normal college kid life. I'm yeah. almost embarrassed that I brought that to my professor, but she was just so nice and wonderful. She didn't even yeah. hear. She gave me great life advice, um, hey. right down to what kind of winter socks I should buy. <laughs> just saying. That is useful advice. <laughs> It was because I made the mistake of going to Columbia, Missouri, thinking, oh, this is like South kind of, I mean, it's mm -hmm. more Southern than Chicago. So it's probably not going to get very cold in the winter. Yeah. I mean, it'll probably get cold, but not that cold. Right. And then I made the mistake of bringing very thin socks. And she was like, mm -hmm. honey, yes, we're South, but like it still gets below zero. So she was like, you're going to want this kind of sock. And I was like, oh. uh -huh. so yes, wonderful conversations. And she always had chocolate, the chocolate drawer, magic chocolate. Oh, drawer. So well. go for a treat. Not every yeah. professor has that. You can request it and maybe they'll, if you're lucky, they'll do that. But some of them might. Yeah. And then the third and final question brings us right back to the poem, mm -hmm. which is when I read the poem, I immediately get hit with this idea of it's a political statement by Shelley talking about the ephemeral nature of power, mm. all power, mm. Mm -hmm. mostly political, let's be real, but like all power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's this reminder, you know, it's a memento mori, we will all die. Mm. And Ramesses thought he was going to reign in Egypt forever and that his civilization would be around forever. And it turned to dust. It took like three mm -hmm. millennia, but it took to dust. It, it turned to dust and we wouldn't know about it if it weren't for archaeologists and the little people trying to go recreate history and the statue mm. that is broken that we speak of. It, we wouldn't mm. have found it if it hadn't one been made by the artisan who he commissioned because we know mm. that he is Pharaoh would not have been making his own sculptures. Oh, goodness, yeah. no. If it's this beautiful statement like this, mm. if we think about today's contemporary society. Mm. Is there a modern Ozymandias? Like, is there something that we think is great and amazing and that will last forever, but like realistically in a thousand years? And that's being generous. That's if like climate mm. change doesn't kill us. So to almost to, to be like generous, I'll even just say in like 200 years, right. you know, will it still be around or will we just be like, looking back at it like this was the stupidest thing we ever could have thought of mm. oh that is an existential question for the morning <laughs> maybe better for the evening over in greece <laughs> um, i mean i think that climate change is really the where my mind goes and i think actually about some things like say launching twenty thousand satellites into space <laughs> and those will be those will continue to float in space for a long time. And if there's no people left to watch TV or surf on the internet, they're just going to be you know, monuments to brief moment in time. There is actually, I listened this morning just by chance to sort of audio art piece on a podcast called Constellations. And the audio art piece. I wish I could remember the name of the artist who did it, but the piece itself was called Bob Hope, No Hope. I was imagining if you were an alien picking up earth transmissions, what would actually be the radio trace of the earth? And it might just be lots of Bob Hope slapstick kind of uh, vaudevillian shtick. That's what we've sent out into the universe for 
all the other inhabitants of the galaxy to find. Oh man, that would be kind of scary as an alien to like pick that up and be like, is this what these earthlings are about? Yeah. Scared. I'd be like, what? Okay. We're not going to invade this one. We're going to let it be. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I love that. And yeah, that really, that got me thinking. I'm like, well, if climate change destroys us all and humans are gone, yeah, all those like satellites that we put up and like the International Space Station and all that, eventually those would just shut down and break and then be swept away into the void of space, right? Because like Mm. I'm presuming we need to either remote pilot them or they have like long ass batteries or to, to, to make them power on and work. And if we are no longer here to work, them then they just become more space debris mm-hmm. where they just hang there forever with no one yeah. to operate them that's like yeah. actually kind of scary yeah well on a on that beautifully <laughs> broad theoretical ending right there that i love and find kind of horrifying yeah i will say that it has been such a pleasure to be able to speak to you across an ocean and yeah. it was just so fun to, to have this conversation and and i hope you'll you'll come back and, and join me at some other time um, thanks lexi yeah i, I really had fun. fun to talk with you too yeah i really enjoyed the chance to talk with you <laughs> Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.